The Gist is sponsored by Goldman Sachs. Information about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy on the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes. And by Spotless, a sexy, bold drama laced with dark humor from Esquire Network. Learn more about Spotless by downloading Coming Clean, a roundtable podcast that goes behind the scenes of TV's best dramas. And tune into the Spotless season premiere, November 14th at 10 Eastern, 9 Central, on Esquire Network. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, November 13th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump said something yesterday that didn't make a lot of sense. Now, I know that sentence challenges the traditional definition of news, as I understand it. And that thing, it wasn't when he asked the Iowa crowd, how stupid are Iowans? Because, you know, he's slipping a little in the polls. It's a question that needed to be asked. Here was something Donald thought needed to be said. He said he's got pathological disease. He actually said pathological temper, and then he defined it as disease. So he said he has pathological disease. Now, if you're pathological, there's no cure for that, folks. The he was Ben Carson, currently neck and neck with Trump in Iowa. Trump went on to liken Ben Carson's claim that he had a pathological temper as a youngster to a totally analogous ailment. If you're a child molester, a sick puppy, you're a child molester, there's no cure for that. Well... Of course, pathological just means disease, doesn't mean disease that can't be cured. Diseases can be cured. Polio, all but cured. Smallpox, cured. There is a pathology of smallpox. There's also a cure for smallpox. Will it matter? No, it will not. Will Trump's mistaken claim that China loves the Trans-Pacific Partnership, even though China's not in the Trans-Pacific Partnership and doesn't love the Trans-Pacific Partnership, will that hurt Trump? No, it will not. Well, Dr. Ben Carson's assertion that, uh, let's just pick one of several, that the Chinese are fighting in Syria. Will that hurt Dr. Carson? It will not hurt Dr. Carson. I don't want to get Dr. Carson angry when I say that. Apparently, he's pathological and might, I don't know, molest me. I'm going by the science that I learned in the Donald Trump Institute for the Study of Pathology and Classiness. But here's my theory about what misstatements, not really misstatements, what demonstrations of gaps of knowledge when they hurt candidates. And I do not think that candidates are usually hurt when they get a question wrong, like when George W. Bush couldn't name all those different world leaders back in 2000. I just think that voters do not punish a candidate that they are supporting for not knowing facts that they, the voters, themselves don't know. Now, people who don't like the candidate, maybe voters on the fence, will shake their heads and say, that's something he ought to know. But a current supporter will not flee from a candidate who makes a mistake that the current supporter did not know. Voters will punish candidates who get it wrong if the voter immediately knows that it's wrong. There is no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe, and there never will be under a Ford administration. Now, Ford says he meant to say that their spirits weren't under Soviet control, that their souls weren't under control. Voters just said, yeah, I don't know what you think you mean, but you're simply wrong. And the vote went to Jimmy Carter. So Donald Trump, 
Ben Carson, heck, Marco Rubio, feel free to get it wrong. The philosopher vote wasn't going to tip the Iowa Republican caucus anyway. On the show today, it's an Antan twig. But first, there's a new movie set to open today in New York, then L.A., then big cities throughout the world. The name of the movie is kind of hilarious, James White. There's nothing hilarious about that. In fact, there's nothing hilarious about the movie. It's a really well-acted, fraught drama. But if you Google James White today, you will get the following hits. The Art of Dying, Inside the Devastating Drama of James White. Review, In James White, Facing Adulthood with Uncertainty. Patriot's Mailbag, James White Should Be Dependable Third Down Back. Yeah, there's a guy named James White on the Patriots, and he's a number one ad in fantasy football. There's also a drama about a cancer patient and her son, who's a little despondent, though it's well acted, and that's also called James White. Anyway, I can't help you with your fantasy team, but I can introduce you to the director and star of James White, not the running back. James White's new film from writer-director Josh Mond. It stars Christopher Abbott, who, and I just say this to our and to our listeners, he was uh, he was in Girls for a short time, played Charlie, Marnie's boyfriend, now you know the guy. Well, in this film, it's an effective performance, fantastic performance, nominated performance. As the son of Cynthia Nixon, her character has been dying of cancer. And in this clip we're going to play, we hear James White tell his mom, despite everything that's been going on, he still needs to go to Mexico. Look... Nick is down in Mexico. I am going to go visit him. I am not going to drink. I am not going to smoke. I'm going to write, and I'm going to meditate, and I'm going to eat healthy, and I'm going to swim, and I'm going to work out, and I'm going to write about all these feelings that are welled up inside of me. And when I get back, I will get a place and a job. I'm going to call Ben today, and I'm going to set up an appointment, but I need to go away. And when I come back, I will be ready for life. I want to welcome Josh and Chris here. Thanks for coming in, Thanks, guys. Thanks, So it, tell me, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't believe that there is any shot in this movie that isn't either of James or from James POV. Is that right? I don't think there's an establishing shot. I don't think there's any scene from outside a room that James is in. Maybe I'm wrong. No, the whole movie's subjective. Yeah. The only time the camera really shifts over to Cynthia, to Gail, is when Gail he, White, James, Gay mom, White, yeah, James is going mom. through cancer. And that's, I mean, this is plot. This is the plot. No, it's the movie's a portrait of a mother and son. Yes. It's like, yes, she dies in the film. That's that's just how it is. It's not really, it's about that, but it's not like it's a twist. You know, mm-hmm. it's not, it, this is what it's about. It's a relationship between a mother and son. But the camera shifts over to follow Gail when he's finally thinking about her, when she is the focus, when he's doing what's right. and that's, But it's still subjective because he's, thinking of her, but it's not a POV and it's not on his face. Right. And another thing that doesn't pander to the audience is he grows, your character grows, but it's not this clear arc. We see evidence that he tries and accomplishes things for his mom and then like the next day parties hard and fucks up. Right. I mean, yeah. it's, and it's, it's also just not that kind of movie. There's not, you're not meant to have this feeling of redemption. By the end of it, he has, he, like you said, he has learned something, but you're, you know, He's had this experience and now he's going to go off and become some great writer or something. You know, it's not it's not that at all. That's not what the movie's about. The movie's just about, okay, this today and now, now we got to deal with tomorrow. And it's left, I think, open-ended and ambiguous enough where in, in just the perfect amount so, so that you feel like, 
okay, you know, yeah, maybe he'll be okay, but maybe, maybe um, he might repeat the same mistakes several more times before, you know. Is what you found compelling in the character what was written or the fact that there was so much room that wasn't explicitly laid out that you thought you could do things with? Uh, very much both. You know, I thought I thought that the, the character on the page was extremely specific. You know, I've been friends with Josh for years, so I was lucky enough to kind of be brought in on the process pretty early on. So I, I had the story floating around in my mind for a, a good amount of time before we actually started shooting it. But the way it's written and, and the way Josh works and the way that I work with him is that there, there's room to play. And there are there's the dialogue, and then I get to do the stuff between the lines. But any script in that in that sense, whenever I see that much room in there, where I'm like, oh, I, I can now I can do my job and I can fill this in, and uh, I I get excited because because there is no there's very little or no exposition in this script in in that way, and I and I that's what I love about it. Were you influenced by European directors, Romer, more kind of honest small moments? Uh, yeah, I mean Hanukkah's always been like a god to me and my partners so i didn't see him more until after making the movie because i i didn't know if i wanted to em- embrace it because it, the subject matter being that i had my own experiences with cancer and what we were doing one of the the movies is so weird i watched it the day after my mom passed away beautiful by anaratu yeah i she, like i love that movie and it was definitely a huge influence but joachim trier uh, who did Oslo, August 31st, and Reprise, I mean, mm-hmm. and, and now Louder Than Bombs. I'm a huge fan, uh, definitely an influence, and the first three seasons of Law and Order. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, I'm being serious. <laughs> no, there's a procedural, like, it, just, it was so gritty and so raw in the beginning and the the pacing of it, and I, I being from New York, like, I I felt, I feel it's like the most authentic it's not Sidney Lumet, but it's Sidney Lumet at its best. Yeah. And I may get attacked for that, but it's true. It's like the first three seasons are pretty, like, gangster. Yeah. You know, it just, like, how gritty it is. So you you work, is it like a collective? Because I know you're listed on a lot of credits as your first movie, but you, a bunch of you guys work together? Yeah, we're three directors yeah. who... Who are the other two? Uh, Antonio Campos, who directed After School and Simon Killer, and Sean Durkin, who directed Martha, Marcy May Marlene, and Southcliffe, a yeah. miniseries. We met at NYU. Actually, Antonio and I went to high school together briefly, and we had both been in the film industry since we were really young and knew of each other. But at NYU, we all kind of came together within the first week of school and formed our company where we were going to support each other to become directors. And so we rotated as producers for each other on short-form stuff as we got behind Antonio to make his first feature. And we've supported each other ever since, you know, and we've our goal was for all of us to make our first features and we're here now and and now we want to direct movies kind of like at the same time while still supporting each other you know uh as protection i mean it's nice to have people around you that you know their agendas are only for you to do well and for the film to do well and you know that and i think that's carried over into the rest of our crew and to our actors i mean second time we've worked with third time we worked with chris we worked with an actor brady corbet like four four or five times um, our DP, like Matias, who worked with twice, Jody Lives, and you know, it's it's a it's a place to feel vulnerable and safe, and and, and kind of everyone has these pretty clear intentions. So listen, does, does a, that make sense? It does, and but a lot of times, what happens when you have a group like this? Some outsider names it, and then it hangs on you, mumblecore, right? How do you, those guys get fr- from under it? So go ahead, name yourself. What would you name yourselves? 
Do you have a? Yeah, we have our, our company name is Borderline Film. Uh huh. But if if we call like what what do we call the movement? There's the new Lumet. What do we what no, do we dub it? No, no, there is no there is no name. Right. I'm just saying, get in front of it. Some I, my... I I would not want to. If Sean or Tony wants to give it a name, they can. I'm not. Well, I mean, but you know, you guys have. I mean, you guys have a company together. But then, like you, you were just saying, you also work with a lot of the same people. Yeah. And that that's like the Cassavetti's world. You know, yes, where you, exactly. Where, Cassavetti's right. was where, someone where, else who definitely came up. Where yeah. where you know he would work with a lot of the same actors a lot and like you know so it has that element to it sure whatever i'm yeah. i'm, I'm you, you're not saying that i am no no i i i like the casavetti's aspect of it i i think the way casavetti's made i became obsessed with casavetti's after making the movie really yeah like i wasn't i didn't dig shadows and like you know when you go to film school you're like i don't i don't want like Godard and i don't like Truffaut and i don't like casavetti's and then you see like 400 blows and you're like oh fuck and then you see Godard and you <laughs> see Breathless and you're just like yeah. wow and then I kind of fell into him after and I watched all his movie chronologically and then I had known his the stories I read Cassavetes on Cassavetes in college but then you like really understand how he made his movies and his relationship with his wife how they made the movies together is like the fantasy you know they definitely struggled and they definitely did what they wanted to do and they were aggressive, but like the way that they respected, or the way it seemed that they respected each other and created together, is kind of like my fantasy. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's just like they went in together into battle. Should have cast a dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could be Ben Gazzara, I think. Yeah, right. Well, you know, you know the Peter Falk story, right? For um, for a woman under the influence, right? Okay, so do you mind? Go ahead. So I listened to an um, interview that Gina Rollins. John Cassavetes and Peter Falk did after A Woman Under the Influence. Mm-hmm. And so John Cassavetes wrote multiple versions, first as a play and then as a, a script. And he got Peter Falk not only to star in it, but to finance half of it. That one of the actors financed the movie. Yeah. So I didn't it, know that. I love that may, movie. May, I that. Maybe, maybe, and maybe. Like, well, you want money? You're asking me for money. <laughs> this is, this no? is how it happens, folks. Giving, I don't have any. This is season <laughs> four. I'm not financing right next year. Yeah, I'm but, saying it right here too. I'm not financing your next. But I'm movie. just, I'm just saying, if, if you're the one that Forget gave it. it a name, Forget it. Okay, just drop it. Okay. All right. I want to ask you guys about one scene, and this is this is in in a movie with a lot of great scenes. This is this is very near the end. You're talking to Cynthia Nixon's playing your mom, gal. And you're spinning this story, you're comforting her, she's in really late stages of cancer, and you're talking about a hypothetical. You present yourself as a kind and loving man, and it struck me, like, we say you you lost your mom, we say loss, right? But the saddest thing isn't when you lose something, it's what you never have. You show my children all the museums on Sundays. You teach them about everything. We have dinner. At my house every Friday as a family. <sighs> Smell the flowers in the flower market. See the Louvre. See Rodin's garden. See me happy. See me as a father. See me as a kind and loving man. See me smile to see you so happy. So then it's done, and you kind of look up, and the eye level changes. So playing that role, did you do that scene a lot of times? We didn't. We yeah. didn't do it. I don't remember exactly how many times we did it, but we did it all the way through each yeah. time. Yeah, there was no cuts. There was no cuts. Yeah. 
so we got to kind of work it through beginning to end in that way. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a pretty strong, I mean, it's so well written too, that bit. And there was a pretty strong understanding from everyone, me and Cynthia and Josh and everyone, like of w what this is about. So there, um, I felt like there wasn't much rehearsal necessary. Like we got it. We we know what this is. And I, and I, I what I always find very beautiful about that scene is 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 the idea of Im, um, implanting um, a memory for someone. You know, because our our own real memories exist in our minds in these fragmented ways anyway mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and then they get they get changed around and whatever and then they just li they just live in your mind what, what's wrong with with even though it's not real even though it's a false memory that you're implanting what's wrong with doing that for someone it can it can still maybe live in the same same part of your brain you know you know what i mean i i, I always thought I, I, that's what I like about that. From your character's perspective, he was trying to do a kindness from her. From my perspective as the audience member, it was like doubly tragic. Because she's dying and she never got to see him achieve the stuff that he yeah. knew that she wanted him to achieve. We're not talking about Nobel Prizes. We're talking about, I have a couple kids and you live nearby and you go to bookstores. Right. Yeah. So how much direction yeah. was there? I mean, at the end, he changes his eye level. He kind of looks up. Are you kind of a documentarian in that moment or did you tell him to do some of that? Um... You know, we shot it over like a year and a half ago, so yeah. a lot of it can be created as mythology right now for me. Um, you know, I, 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 that sequence of like caring for her or being with her, um, you know, when she's in hospice, that that came from a real place for me. That's one of the most personal things in the movie, while not being autobiographical. I did not have that um, experience of, you know, creating this future for her like James does, but. Um, just just the bath I, I don't know I just try, tried my best to kind of like share what I was what I felt about the scene or what I, what, what, what I felt remembered from my experience I wasn't that specific we kind of all figured it out together mm -hmm. you know there was the script was very movie like where he's holding her while he's telling her the story and that just right. wasn't possible and you know through the conversation and, and feeling the space they were able to discover their own blocking and what seemed comfortable for them you know I just wanted to see them as a portrait together James White is the name of the movie it opens, what is the rollout schedule? November 13th yeah. um, at the Landmark Sunshine in New York. And then the following week it opens at the Arclight, November 20th. After that, it starts going to Chicago, San Francisco every week. So it opens in uh, New York and L.A. and then bigger cities and then, I don't know, maybe gets nominated for a few awards or something like that and gets some momentum. Sure. Thanks a lot. Josh Mond, writer-director, Christopher Abbott star, James White's The Movie. Thank, Thank you, you so guys. much. Thank you very much. I should also note that during this interview, Josh and Chris were looking at each other a lot and actually conversing. It was kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Esquire Network's new series, Spotless, a sexy and bold drama laced with dark humor. Spotless tells the story of a troubled man whose tidy life is turned upside down when his outlaw brother crash lands into his world, forcing dark secrets of the past into light and getting both of them fatally involved in organized crime. Played out against a backdrop of Gene's niche crime scene cleaning business with gangsters, corruption, drugs, and death a constant hazard, Gene, Martin, and their dysfunctional family struggle to gain control over life, business, and their shared destiny. No one gets away clean. Find out what happens when the mob needs a little cleaning up. Spotless premieres November 14th, 10, 9 central on Esquire Network.
And now the spiel, Antan Twiggin' It. It's an Antan Twig, our word for a three-week period where we check in on listener feedback, where we issue corrections, where we award lobsters, where we discover exoplanets that are 39 light years from Earth, which makes the exoplanet close enough to be studied. Maybe you've heard of GJ1132b. It's an exciting planet to astronomers, and it just points out that we are an odd, odd species. We have a name for the roll of fat that protrudes over the belt. We call that the muffin top, right? We have an expression on fleek that exists. So far as I can tell, it exists so that there can be an expression on fleek. But this planet which the Smithsonian says is a new Earth-sized planet getting astronomers riled up, could be a rare opportunity for scientists to study an exoplanet's atmosphere. Seems at least as big as the roll of fat over your belt. No, the only name we have for it is JG1132B. Eh, in a little too many hot pockets. Get a little JG1132B there, Chuck. Anyway... First, one more diversion before I get to the Antan Twig. Saw this item in the news, local New York story. Someone was aiming one of those laser pointers at News Chopper 4. And so News Chopper 4 tracked the guy down. He got arrested. And it struck me. Notice the word I use in that sentence, track the guy down. And notice how you didn't say guy. That this is the most male activity on Earth. It's not hogging the remote. It's not asking for directions. It's pointing a laser at an aircraft. I have never heard of a woman being arrested for pointing a laser at an aircraft, but I am wrong. A woman has been arrested. I went to the site laserpointersafety.com where they chronicle everyone who's been arrested for pointing a laser at an aircraft. And earlier this year, a woman in England was arrested. And three years ago, a woman named uh, Irene Marie Levy of San Jacinto, California was arrested. In fact, it was the second or third time she was arrested. She was already on probation. She was referred to a mental health court. So that's kind of a sad story. But when I searched the site for the word woman, I got 18 hits, but almost all of them were contained in phrases like FBI spokeswoman or police spokeswoman, but hundreds of men, most of them have very interesting mugshots, have been arrested for pointing their lasers at aircraft. But maybe this doesn't denigrate my gender. Maybe it elevates them. When you listen to the reason why they were pointing their laser at the helicopter or the aircraft, Police report that the suspect wanted to, quote, use the laser as a reference point to see how far the laser beam could travel. And they added, quote, it sparkled. So it's a spirit of inquiry. It's like Isaac Newton or Vasco da Gama. We men, we are never satisfied until we see how long the laser beam can travel. Okay, on to corrections. The first correction I wanted to give was I was talking and complaining about daylight savings time. In fact, I spend so much time not saying daylight savings time, but daylight saving time, that I missed a more salient fact. We are not now living in daylight saving time. We are living in standard time. I got it. It's noted. Here from Jake Anderson, another note. Mike enjoyed the podcast. Background, my wife and I had trouble with fertility doctors. This was about the Maria Konnikova segment on fertility. He notes the great podcast. You ignored the subject of cost. Treatment costs on average $20,000 for IVF, which equates to 40% for U.S. household income. Thus, if someone is having trouble, it's not as straightforward as getting treated. Financial, temporal, and emotional toll takes treatment out of the question for all but the richest Americans, and he and his wife have a program to combat that. Anyway, the reason I bring this up is that's a fine point. And what I emailed Jake was, thanks for writing in. That's a great lint. See, I mistyped point, 
and it wound up saying lint. So I want to correct. I think I went back. I think I did this with Jake. But if any of you have gotten an email from me or Andrea, but it's really me, after writing in, and I said that you're raising a great lint, I want to correct that. I meant not that you were raising a great amount of cotton effluvia stuck in my belly button, but you are raising a great point. Jason Watson writes in about Jim Pasco, the executive director of the Fraternal Order of Police, who issued a vague threat to Quentin Tarantino. That threat went like this. Tarantino made a good living out of violence and surprise, says Pasco. Our officers make a living trying to stop violence, but surprise is not out of the question. And Jay Watson says he hates that. He hates when people say, person creates X for entertainment, therefore X is literally how they believe the world works. It has always struck me as the laziest and most blatantly uninformed argument. That is a good point. I hadn't even considered how stupid that aspect of his otherwise stupid argument was. But lazy is exactly the word that comes to mind when I think of this argument. It's just lazy bullying, where you take one salient fact and you blow it up. Oh, Britney Spears criticized the police. Well, I see Britney likes to sing, baby, hit me one more time. What if we hit you with a disrupting the peace charge? Oops, you did it again. Well, what if getting arrested were what you did again? Pasco is also the guy who, when Barack Obama weighed in on over-policing and he did it on vacation, Pasco literally said, I would contend that discussing police tactics from Martha's Vineyard is not helpful to ultimately calming the situation, right? That's the other classic, lazy, dismissive bullying move. Well, we're going to listen to you. We don't like the place where you said that from or the place where we imagine you will repair to after saying that. Like this New York Post editorial about Quentin Tarantino. It may be hard to see from an L.A. mansion, but regular folks don't have the luxury of anti-cop fantasy. Lazy. Thank you, Jay, for alerting us to this strain of lazy bullying. Now to give out my Lopstars. The second runner-up for Lopstar is Twitter user at StaffWriter. Name is Max Loxie, who just tweeted me this. Andrea, can we play it from the iPhone? Tennis ball. Glowing star. Of the ant. And branch with leaves. All right, that probably means nothing to you, but it's the emoji version of Lobstar of the Antan Twig. Tennis ball, lob, star is star. You got your ant and you got your, you know, the closest thing they have to twig. Tennis ball, glowing star of the ant and branch with leaves. Thanks, Loxie. You almost won the Lobstar of the Antan Twig, but you have started a fever in the office for texting each other emojis and making Siri read it. The sub-lobstar of the Antan Twig, and if the lobstar of the Antan Twig can't serve out his or her term, sub-lobstar will have to fill in, is at Mets Outsider. I remember last Antan Twig, I told the story of a woman who blocked me, who blocked me because she didn't like my thoughts about open-mindedness. Mets Outsider did an end around. Knowing that I cannot communicate to you at Renee One Hensley, he wrote, at Renee One Hensley, Mike Pesca, whom you blocked yesterday, talked about your misunderstanding on his podcast. And then he created a link to which Renee Hensley replied, what did he say? Whoa, am I becoming someone to contend with? LOL. Mets Outsider said, he said you misunderstood him and found it ironic that someone tweeting about listening being a virtue would block him. To which Renee Hensley said, I do listen, but if I find the conversation as an attack against what I believe, then yes, I have the right to block them. 
A Mets outsider said to Renee Hensley, well, have a good rest of your day. And Renee Hensley replied, I am becoming a celebrity, two exclamations, LOL, uh, no thanks. I think you've elevated the conversation. Thank you, Mets outsider. But the lobster of the Antan Twig is a guy named Robert Milligree, who writes in about the thing that everyone's writing me. All you guys have to do is go through all the archives. You'll find your answer, but fine. I'll tell you why at the end of every show. I say, um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru. It is from Portuguese. I was talking one day about Turkey, the country, and Turkey, the food, having the same word, and yet the Turks not at all being delighted by this. And a Brazilian listener wrote in to say that in Brazil, Peru means the country Peru, it means the food Turkey, and it also means penis. Well, Robert, a Brazilian speaker, adds this. When a goalkeeper does a really terrible job, let's say, lets the soccer ball into the goalposts in a particularly embarrassing way, that is also known as a Peru. And folks would exclaim at a soccer match, K Peru, typically followed by booing. And then he notes, if a turkey's penis were to be a goalkeeper cartoon character and that penis were playing soccer in Peru and has done a terrible job as goalkeeper, you could say something like, um, Peru, do Peru, do Peru, no Peru. I could, but I'm not going to because it's too wordy. But what I am going to do is this, Rob Milligree. I'm going to name you the lobster of the Antan Twig. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, just producer, is a shooting star of menorah symbol we think of andy bowers not only as executive producer of the gist but as something of a red double exclamation mark as relates to clockwise circle arrows with circled one representing media playback repeat of single track the gist soon we air our portuguese motto but until then remember to keep us in your flag of zimbabwe because that'd be asian idiograph meaning reserved um peru de peru du peru and thanks for listening